those of you who have been at Christ Press for a while, you probably know Brother Tom Darnell uh, and his wife uh, Cheryl, who occasionally is able to be with him. But uh, for, for, uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with Brother Tom, let me give you just a brief idea of uh, his background. University of Northern Iowa with a master's degree in historical the uh, theology from Covenant uh, Theological Seminary. He directed several campuses, Cornell and the University of Virginia with the Navigators, uh, pastored in Virginia and Nashville, and um, is currently providing pastoral support for more than 80 teaching pastors, our teaching pastors of the churches in the Nashville Presbytery. And uh, we always are so glad, and I, I can't think of, uh, uh, I can't think of a, uh, a better um, thought that comes to mind, uh, just the great wisdom God has given you and experience, and we're grateful that you're coming to lead us this morning, Brother Tom. It's a delight to be with you again, and I'll be back in two weeks, so I look forward to uh, ministering the Word this morning and uh, in a couple weeks hence. As I was worshiping with you, uh, I was thinking, you know, these songs that we're, we have sung have been so thoughtfully chosen, and the readings that we have won, uh, have, have uh, heard read have been so thoughtfully selected. I'm not sure I need to preach a sermon. You already heard a sermon if you were... <laughs> If you are following the main themes that we're trying to highlight the parable, so uh, you have a wonderful precursor, I hope, to the sermon, and uh, may it do justice to what we sang and read earlier. During uh, the Korean War uh, in 1948, uh, a band of communists took control of a town called Sunchun uh, near, near the uh, 38th parallel. And while they were there, they executed two brothers, uh, Matthew uh, and John, who were the sons of Pastor Son. And just before their death by their executioners, they called on their communist enemies to bow to the Lord Jesus Christ and to know him as Savior and Lord. Well, after the war, when the communists uh, were driven out of Pastor Son's village, uh, a young man in the village named Kai Sun was identified as the persecutor and murderer of Pastor Sun's two boys. Uh, he was uh, brought to trial and uh, found guilty, and his execution was ordered uh, by the authorities. When uh, Pastor Sun learned this, uh, he requested uh, that Kai Sun's charges be dropped. Uh, and that he be released into his own custody to adopt him. Matthew's uh, uh, and John's 13-year-old sister, Rachel, testified during the trial to support his father's request, this incredible, unbelievable request. And they granted her the request. He was released from prison. Uh, Pastor son adopted him, and he became a member of their family. So what was Pastor Son's perspective on all this? Let me read one of the things he said. He said, I thank God that he has given me the love to seek to convert and adopt my son, the enemy, who killed my dear boys. Now that's an extreme case 
of forgiveness that likely none of us will ever have to face. But nonetheless, probably daily for a lot of us, uh, weekly for most of us, we need to face the decision, will we forgive so-and-so who has sinned against us? We all have the challenge to forgive sin. It doesn't need to be as radical a circumstance as pastor sons. So the parable we're going to look at today uh, is a parable to help all of God's children to deal with the pain and the anger that comes from being sinned against and gives us a reason why we can forgive by God's grace. So let me read that parable. It's from Matthew 18. It begins in verse uh, 21 to the end of the chapter. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy times seven. Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay his debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him up to the judges, to the jailers, until he should pay his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is God's word. Well, two simple points with this parable we're going to talk about. First of all, to review the story together. Well, I'll review that with you. And then secondly, to learn the parable's lessons. That's what we're going to do this morning. Let me pray for us all before we come to his word and to learn the lessons he has for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this parable. We thank, your telling, thank you for the telling of it has been preserved for us. Thank you that it's in your word, the holy word of God for us. And we would pray now, Lord, for our hearts, that we would have a tender heart, that we would learn the lessons that are here for our relationship with you and others, that it would minister grace, that it would minister mercy, 
it would be an empowering motive for the forgiveness that you call us all to give each other just as it has been given to us. Lord, this we pray with an expected spirit and with great thanks because we prayed in Jesus' name. Amen. So first of all, let's review the parable story. Let's talk about the merciful master. Uh, in this case, uh, this master is not just a master of servants. He's a king. He is a king. So one day he decides that he has a lot of his servants indebted to him, that he wants those accounts to be settled. So he begins to call them in, probably one by one, to settle their debts. So one of those servants that came in uh, owed him 10,000 talents, which is worth about 6,000 denarii. So, so the talent, that is to say one talent, is worth, is worth 6,000 denarii. So in total, he owed him the small amount, 60 million denarii. That's what you call a debt. Since the servant uh, couldn't pay up, uh, the master uh, ordered what was an acceptable practice that day, uh, that he would be sold into slavery and all his possessions would be auctioned off so he could gather what he could of what was owed him. And in this case, the king ordered not just him to be put into prison put, uh, and, and made, made a slave, but all of his family would be as well. So when he did this, when he ordered this for the servant, uh, he fell on his knees and pleaded for mercy that this would not be his, his fate. The king took pity on him and forgave him all the debt that he owed him. He was forgiven the debt. Then we have the story of the unmerciful servant. This is the friend of the servant who was forgiven. And so the forgiven servant comes across this friend that he seeks out, that he could gather the debt that was owed him. So he went to him and asked that he'd owe him, that he pay back the hundred denarii that he was owed. And so this servant did exactly what the forgiven servant did. He pleaded that he would forgive him of this debt. So this forgiven servant was angry at him. It says that he reached out with his hands and was choking him. Pay me my debt. But he would not in any way be merciful to him as the king had been merciful to the forgiven servant. So he was then uh, put uh, in the same way, put into prison until he should pay the debt that he owed. Well, when the king heard this, it was told him by the other servants of this encounter that the forgiven servant had come across a fellow servant who owed him a debt, and he would not forgive him. Comparatively speaking, the small amount was owed him that the king forgave him of himself. So the king calls him when he's brought into his presence and told this story, he called him wicked for doing what he had done to his friend. He called him a wicked servant. So the king withdrew his offer and the debt that he was owed and put him in prison, which was essentially a life imprisonment, so, because how in the world is he going to pay 60 million 
denarii. It's a life sentence. That's reviewing the story. So what are the lessons for us? Let's review the parable's lessons. So if you remember that when we read this, the story told by Christ was in response to a question that Peter asked him. If he should forgive his brother seven times. Now it's very likely, we aren't told this, but it's very likely that Peter is asking this question to bring to Jesus' attention how wonderful a student he was of this rabbi called Jesus of Nazareth. Because back in chapter 16, Jesus asked the question, who do you say I am? Who answers this question? Peter. What does he say? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus praises him for that answer. So now he comes two chapters later with this question. Should I forgive my friend as much as the seven times? So it's very, very uh, likely that Peter's asking this second question to get yet another round of expected praise from the rabbi of what he has learned from him. So behind Peter's question is probably this knowledge that rabbis taught during that time period uh, that you're not to forgive a person more than three times. You should forgive three times, but that's it. That's the limit. That's the ceiling. Three times and no more. So what does Peter do? Peter doubles that amount to six and has one more for good measure. And so he says to Jesus, can I forgive my friend as much as seven times? So when Jesus answers Peter, he doesn't just stagger him. He blows him away. And what does he say? You need to forgive seven times seven. You need to forgive 490 times. Now that's just a figurative number. It's not meant to be literal. It means you forgive him an infinite amount. There's no end to your forgiveness is how he answers Peter. There's no limitation. So to illustrate this kind of forgiveness, Jesus tells the parable. To illustrate the kind of forgiveness that he's talking about. John MacArthur says this, Never are we more like God than when we forgive. Never are we less like God than when we don't forgive. So God's forgiveness is an is a illustration and a way by which God transforms our relationship with him. So let's unpack this a little bit to see how this changes our relationship with him if we learn the lessons uh, of this parable of forgiving. So the first part of the parable paints the picture of the merciful master toward the servant who's forgiven the debt of 10,000 talents. The word translated 10,000 was the highest figure uh, in the Greco-Roman world at that time. It's the world we get our word myriad from. Myriads and myriads. Have you heard that term before biblically? This is what this word means. So I stated before that one talent is worth 6,000 denarii. Right? Remember I said that? So since he owed his servant 10,000 talents, he owed 60 million denarii. So, one denarii, just one denarius, was the common wage of a common laborer during that time. One denarius a day. 
saw a laborer could make, uh, on the average, 300 denarii a year. 300 a year. Now, if a person was able to pay all of that denarii toward a debt, this debt, it would take him 200,000 years to pay this debt. That's a long time. Would you agree? <laughs> That's a long time. So translating this into, day to do, into today's economy, that this man owed equal the national debt of the country of Senegal, which is $5.2 billion. That was his debt. So Jesus is using, obviously, a gargantuan illustration to point to the gargantuan love that God has for us in what he has done about our debt. That Jesus Christ came to pay our gargantuan debt on the cross. He came to pay what we owe but could never, ever, ever hope to pay. It's impossible. Listen to Colossians 2. It says this, verse 13 through 15, And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us and its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Jesus came to pay our spiritual debt. Now I want you to think about this. If just one of you in this room were the only person that needed their spiritual debt paid, the only person in all the world, Jesus would still need to come born of a virgin. He would still need to come as the one who went to Calvary. He would still need to be the one who was crucified on the cross. He would still need to be the one to be resurrected from the dead. He would still need to be the one to be raised into heaven as the eternal Son of God if only one of you was the one that he came to pay the debt of. That is how huge that debt is. It can only be paid by the death of the Savior on the cross for us. So from this, we begin to see a, uh, a definition of forgiveness. Forgiveness is this. Forgiveness is mercifully canceling the debt another owes you due to their sin against you. Forgiveness is mercifully canceling the debt another owes you due to their sin against you. Let's flip that to the other side and read the antithesis of that. That unforgiveness, then, is holding someone accountable to pay all the debt they owe you due to their sin. It's like the unforgiving servant who took his friend and, said, and choked him, pay up! That's what we do when we don't forgive. We are expecting people to pay up. So if we just stop and contemplate, as Jesus desires we do with this parable, we need to contemplate the gargantuan debt that he paid toward us by his mercy. We have been given a gift that is incomparable. We can't possibly, we can't possibly grasp the fullness of it and won't until we see him in glory. It transforms our relationship to a living God 
we respond to him with gratitude and humility and mercy for what he's done for us. But secondly, God's forgiveness of us transforms our relationship with others. So in the second part of this parable, he talks about the unmerciful response of the forgiven servant, right? That his friend owes him 100 denarii. So we already said that one denarii uh, is equal to a day's wage of a common laborer. So in today's terms, if we were to talk about those 100 denarii, and if we were to say, what is that like for us today, for someone on a daily wage, it would equal a debt of about $8,700 that he owed him. Now, this is not a small amount of money, right? But compared to what the forgiven servant owed, it was of no comparison at all. It was ridiculously small. It was so little. Really, it was so little. So Jesus is saying to us that being forgiven immeasurable debt transforms us to be able to forgive comparatively tiny debts. Because the debt that he paid for you was gargantuan. What you're asked to forgive is tiny in comparison to what we owe the Lord. Now when I say that, I don't mean to say uh, that the sins others have committed against us shouldn't cause us pain or grief. They can still be very painful. We can grieve over the sin that others commit against us. I'm not saying that shouldn't happen to us. It does cause grief. It does cause pain. Secondly, I'm not saying uh, that forgiving the sins of others is easy and can be dealt with immediately. Sometimes that's very hard to do. Nor am I saying uh, the consequences of another sin against us. I'm not saying that they should never have reasonable or legal consequences for what they did. <clears throat> but I am saying we should come to the place as we understand what God has done for us in cross, to be able to forgive. If you look at the very last uh, verse of the chapter, you remember what it says? He says, So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother, what? From your heart. It comes from within your soul. It's not just something you do because you want to be obedient. <clears throat> it comes from your heart. So what does it mean to forgive from the heart? We have lots of hints right here in this passage. Let's look at three of those, three of those hints. Look at verses 26 and 29. 26 talks about that he is someone, he asks for patience of his master to forgive. What does the, the servant who owes him money, uh, what, what is he asking the forgiven servant to give him? He's asking for him to be patient. Look at verse 29. Patience, patience characterizes forgiveness that comes from the heart. We are patient. We're not rash. We are careful. Patience is what? Patience is a fruit of the Spirit, is it not? Galatians 5, 22 and 23. You know, for the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. That's what it is. So if in our heart we simmer with anger that never goes away, that we are by nature 
because what we've chosen to, to, to think and feel is impatient with the person who sinned against us, then we are just like the servant who was forgiven the gargantuan amount of debt that would not forgive his fellow servant. We are impatient. You can't forgive from your heart if we don't lay hold of and let patience control us. Secondly, pity characterizes the forgiveness that comes from the heart. Look at verse 27. Look there with me. What does it say? It says, And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. This word uh, pity literally means to have the bowels yearn. <laughs> uh, it means to feel a deep inward sympathy. That when the king, the master, heard his servant plea for forgiveness of the debt, heard his circumstance, there was these deep, genuine emotions within his soul that led him to, in pity, to forgive. We know that Jesus has those same feelings. In Matthew 9, 36, it says, As he looked at the vast crowds, he was deeply moved with pity for them. For they were as bewildered and miserable as a flock of sheep with no shepherd. Jesus knows pity. That he has pity on them. As does the king have pity on the servant that he forgave. So to forgive from the heart means that we have a heart of patience. We have a heart of pity. And lastly, we have a heart of mercy. Mercy characterizes forgiveness that comes from the heart. What is mercy? Mercy is withholding the consequences of what someone else deserves. Mercy is withholding the consequences that someone else deserves. You withhold that consequence. You don't make them pay. You don't emotionally put your hand around their neck and choke them and say, pay up. What do we often do when we don't have mercy? Oftentimes, when we are unmerciful, we become passive-aggressive. Do you know what that means? It means you make someone pay by withdrawing yourself. You won't talk to them. You won't look at them. You won't be with them. You withdraw and isolate yourself from them. You want them to pay by withdrawing yourself from relationship with them. Whether they know you're trying to do that or not, although it becomes pretty obvious pretty quick. That's being passive-aggressive. That is being unmerciful. We are not to be like that. That is not forgiving someone from the heart. You can't become passive-aggressive and say you forgive. So to forgive from the heart means to be patient, to have pity, to extend mercy. So because the forgiven servant had no perspective on the debt that he was forgiven, his heart was emptied of mercy. Instead, it was filled with anger, and it demanded what he owed. So he didn't extend mercy. Instead, he demanded justice. I demand justice. Pay what you owe. That is not mercy. C.S. Lewis writes, To be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable. Because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. We extend to others 
what our Savior has extended to us. We live as he has lived. So as we read earlier, what Lewis states sounds a whole like Ephesians 4.32, which says, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. So if we think that's true, and we want to live like that, what is this passage saying? What am I saying? That if you don't ponder often, frequently, throughout your whole life, what God's forgiveness of you really is, what it really is that Christ bore your sin on the cross, unless we spend thought and meditation and emotion on that reality, if we are not overwhelmed with that reality for us, if that doesn't move us to patience and pity and mercy, if we don't do that, it is nearly impossible to forgive one another. It's very hard. So to the degree that you understand Christ's sacrifice and the cross to pay your debt is the degree to which you will be able to forgive other people's debt. You can't separate the two. Now listen to what Peter wrote. Maybe thinking about this parable as he wrote it. This is in 1 Peter 4.8. He says, Above all, hold unfailing your love for one another since love covers a multitude of sins. How do you know that you're walking in Christ-like love in the closest relationships you have? You know you are because you stop keeping score. People that expect to yield justice and not mercy keep score. And if they keep score, they often tell people, uh, tell people the score. <clears throat> Do you remember when you, remember way back when you, and you, you know, they tell stories of all the things done against them over and over and over and over again. <clears throat> that is not a forgiving heart. That is a scorekeeper. Love like this is a love where you fail to keep score. You cover sin. You don't expose it. You cover it. Why? What did Jesus do for you? He covered your sin. He covered it. He won't remember it. It's as far as the east is from the west. How far is that? You can't measure it. You ever thought about that? Why didn't he say as far as the north is from the south? Well, if you start at the North Pole and you go south, you get to the South Pole, and then when you get to the South Pole, you keep going, you get to the North Pole. You can measure that, right? If, you, if, you, if God forgives east to west all our sin, if you go east, when do you stop going east? You don't stop. And when you go west, how, how, when do you stop going west? You don't. How, can you measure this? It's immeasurable. You keep going east, you keep going west, it's an infinite amount. God removes your sin like that for you. He's not a scorekeeper. He's a forgiver. Because Jesus paid your debt. <clears throat> Part of our Reluctance to forgive, I think, sometimes is due to the misunderstanding that the purpose of forgiveness is for the benefit of the one who wronged us. 
But as Lewis Meads points out, who is an ethicist, says the first and often only person to be healed by forgiveness is a person who does the forgiving. I'd like to illustrate that as I close by telling you a story. It comes from the book, The Tale of Despero. Who's read the book, Tale of Despero? Buy the book, read it. It won a lot of awards, not because of the symbolism of the very things we're talking about, but for me, that's why I love it so much. It's about uh, a little mouse. His name is Despero. Roughly translated, now that French word means despair. Despero uh, was born, as the book tells us, with his eyes wide open. He was the smallest newborn mouse ever seen, with, the author says, obscenely large ears. So one of the most basic mouse rules that were taught at that time with Despero was you don't ever, ever, under any circumstance, reveal yourself to a human. You don't do that. But we read in his story of his encounter with a human. That every night, King Philip, where he was staying in this large castle-like home, played his guitar and sang to his daughter, who was named Princess P, before she fell asleep. Now, Despero heard this music and heard this singing, and he commented, oh, it sounds like heaven. It smells like honey to hear her sing. So he would listen, and he became bolder and bolder as time went by to get closer and closer. Then we read this about his relationship with Princess P. Despero stared up at her in wonder. He had gotten that close. The P, he decided, looked just like the picture of the fair maiden in the book in the library. The princess smiled at Despero again, and this time Despero smiled back. And then something incredible happened. The mouse fell in love. Reader, you may ask this question. In fact, you must ask this question. Is it ridiculous for a very small, sickly, big-eared mouse to fall in love with a beautiful human princess named P? The answer is yes. Of course it's ridiculous. Love is ridiculous. Well, they eventually find out that he has gotten close and revealed himself to the princess. So the 13-member council of the mice uh, called Destro to come before them, and because of what he had done, breaking the most basic rule for all mice, he was summoned to live down in the basement of the castle where all the rats live. So as a sign of condemnation, they tied a little red thread around his neck. And he was then with his own father, who never came to his son's defense during the trial. Uh, he was the drummer who drummed his son Despero out of mousedom into the basement to live with the rats. And away he went. He was banished from the mice. But Despero survives 
uh, the dungeon and the rats and shows up one day in the presence of the mouse council covered in flour. I'll let you read the book to figure out why he was covered in flour, but he was. So let me read this account of when he returns from the dungeon by his condemnation. I'm going to read a word here. I wanted to give you the definition of before I read it because I didn't know what it meant when I read it. It's the word perfidy. It's not in my vocabulary. Here's what the word means. The violation of a promise or a vow. The violation of a promise or a vow. Treachery. So when I read that word, remember what it means. So, my, so Destro is now in the presence of the council again. The head mouse gathered himself. He tried speaking again. Fellow members, he said, a ghost, a ghost. And he raised a shaking paw, and he pointed it at Despero. The other mice turned and looked. And there was Despero tilling, covered in flour, looking back at them, the telltale red thread still around his neck like a thin trail of blood. Despero, said Lester, son, you've come back. Despero looked at his father and saw an old mouse whose fur was shot through with gray. How could that be? Despero had been gone only a few days, but his father seemed to have aged many years in his absence. Son, ghost of my son, said Lester, his whiskers trembling. I dream about you every night. I, I dream about beating the drum that sent you to your death. I was wrong. What I did was wrong. No, called the most high-honored headmouse. No. I've destroyed it, said Lester. I've destroyed the drum. Will you forgive me? He clasped his front paws together and looked at his son. No, shouted the headmouse again. No, do not ask the ghost to forgive you, Lester. You did as you should. You did what was the best for the whole hot mouse community. Lester ignored the headmouse. Son, please, son. Despero looked at his father, his gray-streaked fur and trembling whiskers and his front paws clasped together in front of his heart, and he felt suddenly as if his own heart would break in two. His father looked so small, so sad. Forgive me, said Lester again. Forgiveness, reader, is, I think, something very much like hope and love, and a powerful, wonderful thing. And a ridiculous thing, too. Isn't it ridiculous, after all, to think that a son could forgive his father for beating the drum that sent him to his death? Isn't it ridiculous to think that a mouse could ever forgive anyone for such perfidy? But still, here are the words that Espero Chilling spoke to his father. He said, I forgive you, Pa. And he said those words because he sensed that it was the only way to save his own heart, to stop it from breaking in two. Despero, reader, spoke those words to save himself. Dear people, when we won't forgive, when we won't forgive another person, they become your master. And you become their slave, and it will be your destruction. 
would we be a people that ponder over and over and over and over again to explore the depth that you'll never reach of God's love for you in Christ. Only when you grasp that can you forgive your brother and sister as God has forgiven you. Let's pray. Father, for the truth of this passage, we thank you. Lord Jesus, it's, it's a, it seems... <laughs> It just seems like, Lord, we have such a hard time getting a handle on the wonder of your love for us, forgiving us by having our sins nailed to the cross, by you extending mercy that never ends. What a wonderful gift, Lord, we pray. Would you, in your mercy and grace and patience with us, teach us more and more and more what that means. And then would we have the courage and the love to extend that same forgiveness to our brothers and sisters, as has been extended to us. In his name, amen.